You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Gracious God, thank you for the blood of your son Jesus shed for us on the cross. Thank you for what we've just sung. It's so, so wonderfully true. You have made us white as snow. There's nothing else, Lord, that we can do. There's nowhere else. To whom else should we go but to you? God, it's good to worship you this morning. Thank you for the gift of music that we might sing your praises. Thank you for your word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. All You tell us all scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable for us for so many things. So Lord, speak. Your servants are listening. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the small little letter to Philemon. Right after Titus, right before Hebrews. Philemon, not Philemon. It's funny how the Lord leads to uh, texts and to topics, and when you're trying to prepare to speak, this text, this letter, perhaps you've skipped over it, perhaps as someone has told you to turn to it, you've had a hard time trying to find it, because it's so small and it just hides in there. But I'll tell you, it's been good to spend time in this text. It's always good to spend time in God's Word, but it's been good to spend time in this text for my own heart, and um, I pray the Lord uh, blesses you the same. Before I read, uh, just a a point of introduction, I suppose. There are so many things, you don't have to look very far to find so many things out in our world that uh, show us the division amongst people, hatred that is spewed out in all kinds of ways and um, platforms of media and uh, we watch the news and we see all kinds of mess, right? That, that's not news to you. You already knew that when you came here this morning. But 
the human condition, the, the sinful human condition that every person, every human being who's ever breathed air on this earth, we're all under the same condition of sin. And so while we can, as Christians, sometimes think about everything's a mess out there, the reality is sometimes there's, there's mess in here because of sin. And we might not always see it. We might not always understand why or uh, what's the cause of that. It's subtle, but it dwells in the nitty-gritty of relationships and sort of the, the social dynamics of people. You get a bunch of people together, and all kinds of things happen. Those of you that remember high school or are currently in high school, you know that high school sort of is that just that mess of you put a bunch of people together for hours on end in one building, and good night, right? Some of your worst fears are the thoughts of, I would never want to go back to high school, Right? Because the social dynamics of that remind you of a time when maybe you were left out. Maybe you were on the outskirts. Maybe you weren't in. You were lonely. And now, more than ever, there's all kinds of constant reminders of that, of being left out and lonely, especially if you're in high school. Because there's all kinds of ways in which everybody can tell you that you're outside and that you're left out and that you're not in. Because I've heard someone speaking on this recently, when kids go home now, they don't, it's not off anymore. They, social media and all kinds of ways they're connected, you know this, but they're reminded of perhaps how they feel like they're outside, they're left out, they're not in. But that doesn't stop when we finish high school. We continue to feel the same social dynamics of whoever we were then when we come out of that. And we feel outside, we feel left out. There's all kinds of little pockets and groups of people that start to form. Somebody's not in that. And all the division and all of the uh, uh, really unloveliness that happens out in the world tends to start to filter its way into the church. And, you know, we've been talking for the last year or two um, as a church, as a board, as the pastoral Staff, we've been talking about the future. We've been talking about what is God doing here. We've been praying about ways in which we might see what the Lord is doing in the future. How can we, what, what are we supposed to do? How can we prepare? Praise God, He has provided to pay off our mortgage, as we talked about last week. But we, as we think about all these things, it's exciting and it's wonderful and to think about the future. But if, if the we're always worried about, is our doctrine sound, which we should be? We're always worried about, are we following the will of the Lord, which we should be? But if there is a rotten core of sin and divisiveness and really just not love within the core of any church, there's no future. It rots from within. Maybe some of you have been inside of a congregation like that. I've seen the effects of that been a part of it, seen it, where everything seems good, but then you start to get inside for a while, and then you realize, I don't know that these people love each other. And friends, before we go running off and thinking about what's God going to do in the future, if we don't love each other, there is a rotten core at the middle of who we are. 
And so Philemon, I think, is a helpful way in which God can speak to this issue and not me. Because I come as a person who is loaded with all kinds of my own opinions and preferences and social whatevers. So you don't need to hear my opinion. You don't need to hear what I think about what you all should do socially. It doesn't matter, and it won't help you. (laughs) But we do need to hear what the Lord has to say about what he wants to do in and through his people in the church. And the wonderful thing about the Lord is that, and Joel said this and hinted at this, God does not say, you all need to just love each other and be nice to each other. And then he sits back and waits for us to do it. No, God goes a step further and actually empowers us to be able to do that. And he makes up for all the ways that we don't. We sung about the blood. His, the, our Lord Jesus' blood shed for every bitter thought, right? Every evil deed, every impure thought you had about someone else, every ounce of hatred, every ounce of jealousy, every ounce of whatever evil that you spoke or thought or breathed out or acted out upon against someone else, the Lord Jesus' blood shed for that. So he took care of all that, but then he empowers us by his Spirit so that we might love one another. And uh, that's where I'm going. <laughs> if, if you forget everything else I say, love one another. But that is so overused, isn't it? You hear somebody talk about love, right? Well, Jesus is all about love. I sat down over lunch with a uh, kid that uh, used to be in a church we were a part of and uh, connect with him a little bit. And he said, you know, I just, Jesus is all about, you know, we just got to love one another. And I confess that I thought, okay. You know, (laughs) yes, amen. But I knew what was behind everything that he was saying. It was all kind of wishy-washy gobbledygook that meant nothing. So yes, Jesus tells us, the Lord tells us we need to love one another. But there's more to it than just, we need to love one another. Well, what does that mean? Right? I'm always after that. We have these little phrases and these words that we say, but then I just sometimes wonder, well, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Right? Don't just speak off in spiritual things just to try to finish the conversation. Well, you know, Jesus is all about love. What do you mean by that? Right? So, By way of introduction, I want to just set things up for us because I think Philemon points us to many of these themes far better than I could just sit up here and give you a lecture on. This isn't a TED Talk, right? This is a sermon you've come to hear from the Lord, right? And so, let's do that. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. You have to come back next week for the rest. Let me set up the characters here a bit to give us a bit of context. We're going to talk about Paul, we're going to talk about Philemon, and we're going to talk about Onesimus. And then we're going to search out where really this whole theme of loving one another in and through the Christian life. Paul, this is, this is a wonderful example, this little letter is a wonderful example of Paul taking uh, theology and applying it. Taking truth... And applying it. Because we don't read in this letter necessarily these big, deep uh, statements and meaty statements that Paul makes in a bunch of other letters. He is writing to a person, talking to him about a situation, and instructing him based on theology and doctrine. And this is a wonderful example of that. So Paul. Many of you know who Paul is. But let's get a sense of where Paul's at in his whole life and story at this point. Notice at the beginning there, he says he's a prisoner. So Paul's a prisoner. He says three different times, actually, in the letter, verse 9 and verse 13 as well, mentions that he is a prisoner at this point. Most likely, this is during his imprisonment in Rome, his first imprisonment in Rome, which actually is recorded for us in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. Uh, Keep your finger there in uh, Philemon and flip back over to Acts 28. I'll read just a portion of towards the end here, starting at verse 23. At this point, he makes his way all the way to Rome, Paul does, and it's all for the sake of uh, appealing to Caesar, but he is imprisoned at this point. But it's helpful for us to understand the context of his imprisonment. What does this imprisonment look like in Rome? Let's read verse 23. When they had appointed a day for had appointed a day for him, they came to him in his lodging in great num- greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, I only read that verse simply to give us a context of what it's like for Paul in prison in Rome at that time, right? A whole gaggle of people come to him while he's in his lodging, right? It's a lodging. It's not necessarily a cell. Um, And so they all come to him and he's able to teach them for a better part of the day, about Jesus. So just help tuck that away. And when you think about Paul in prison, at least at this time, what that was like. This isn't necessarily the the movie version of down in some deep, dark dungeon, at least at this point. He's been there. He's done that, and he will have it again. But at this point, Paul is in a place where he's given free course to be able to at least speak to people, have visitors, and so on. So Paul's a prisoner. He says he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Also, at this time, he would have uh, written 
the letter to the Colossians and most likely also the letter to the Ephesians during this same imprisonment. We find from verse 23, back in our text in Philemon, he is also in prison, at least at that time, with Epaphras. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you. Seems that he's imprisoned with him. Timothy, verse 1, tells us Timothy is with him, but Timothy is not mentioned as imprisoned with him. But there's others with him as well. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, all in verse 24, tell us about that. And so again, it helps us to understand the context of this particular imprisonment that Paul is in. He's an old man, he says. He refers to himself as an old man there in verse 9. If we try to think about a timeline of what year was this in, it was probably in the year 60 or 61. Um, and it's nearing towards the end of his life. He's an old man at this point. Not yet has written Second Timothy to where it's his last letter, but he's an older man. We find out as well from the context of the, the letter here that Paul is responsible for the conversion of Philemon and the conversion of Onesimus. Verse 9, or excuse me, verse 19, um, Paul says this to Philemon. Talks him, he's talking about repaying things, and we'll deal with this next week more in detail. But he says, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. What else would cause Philemon to owe Paul his own self but that Paul was responsible in pointing him to Christ in the first place? And so Paul uh, tells Philemon, you have a bit of a debt, if you will, to me. And we'll deal with that debt and, uh, and all that that entails next week. But Paul most likely is responsible for the conversion of Philemon. And it's even clearer about his responsibility for the conversion of Onesimus. Verse 10, he says, Whose father I became in my imprisonment. And he's talking about father in the Lord, a spiritual father. He shared with him the, the gospel. And Paul is responsible for Onesimus' conversion. What about Philemon? Well, we can gather some things from this letter about who he was. Um, Paul, uh, Philemon met Paul at some point in the past and was converted. We're not given really any other information outside of this letter. Who he was, what he was, when that happened, how it happened. Other than that, it most likely obviously happened because he's writing to him, knows him, and there's a sense of conversion there in the past. If you read 15 different books that talks about the letter to Philemon, you'll read 15 different ways in which that happened. Um, and all of its speculation, all we know is that it happened. He was considered by Paul to be a fellow worker in the gospel. Verse 1, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. says something about who Philemon was, at least at that point of the writing of the letter. We know as well that he was from Colossae. And we can deduce that from Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be flipping back over to Colossians chapter 4 a few times, so you may want to stick something in there to remind yourself of that. But I would ask you to turn with me back over to Colossians chapter 4. It's very possible that the letter to the Colossians was sent along with the letter to Philemon all at the same time. And in verse 9, this is how we deduce that Philemon was from Colossae. Verse 9 mentions Onesimus. Uh, Tychicus is mentioned in verse 7, but then verse 9. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. If Onesimus is one of the Colossians and Onesimus is Philemon's slave, then most likely Philemon is from Colossae. Right? That's how we get to that. Okay? So Philemon is from Colossae. He was, I've already said it, Onesimus' master or owner. 
Onesimus was his slave. Philemon, we find out back to our text, had a church in his house. Verse 2. He was probably well-to-do. We know that he at least had one slave, or at least he did at one point. He had a guest room, verse 22. Paul tells him to prepare a guest room for me. And he had a house big enough to hold church in, verse 2. And all throughout the letter, various places, we find that Philemon, by the time of Paul's writing to him, was a faithful Christian. He's a fellow worker. Uh, Verse 5, verse 7, verses 21 and 22 tell us more information about the fact that Philemon was a faithful Christian. What about Onesimus? Onesimus' name, you might have in your Bibles there a little footnote that tells you about Onesimus' name, what it means. It means useful. He was a slave owned by Philemon. Verse 16, you find out that he was a bondservant, or uh, literally a doulos, if you like. He was Philemon's slave. Verse 15 tells us that he ran away. This is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while. Verse 18 tells us that something happened, perhaps, between Philemon and Onesimus. He probably stole from Philemon or wronged Philemon in some way. So there's an issue there with their relationship. We've already said Onesimus was converted under Paul's ministry, verse 10. And, thinking back to Colossians 4, which we just read, he was with Tychicus while... um, He delivered the letter to the Colossian church. And so the order of events are interesting, and that helps us shed more light on what's going on in this letter. You know, the overall arching thing here is Paul is, I know I didn't read the rest of the letter, but Paul is appealing to Philemon that he might receive Onesimus back as a brother in Christ and all that that means. This is the former slave going back to the owner Telling the, Paul's telling the owner, receive him back as a brother in Christ, no longer as a bondservant. That's what's happening here. But I, I want you to think about the scene. Tychicus is delivering the letter to the Colossian church. Onesimus is with him. Paul sends him back. There's a letter also for Philemon. Onesimus is standing in the congregation of the Colossian church while this while the letter to the Colossians church is being read, and perhaps as well, while the letter to Philemon is being read. And there stands Onesimus, the runaway slave. uh, You can't make a more dramatic scene, right? So these are our three main men that we're talking about. It's helpful to get some context for all of this. Let's jump in verse 1, and we'll walk through the text here and draw out some things. Paul opens as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. This is the only one of his letters that Paul does that in, that he opens with. He says in other letters that he's a prisoner or that he's in prison, but this is the only letter that Paul writes where he opens and says, Paul, a prisoner, right? Other times he says that he is a, um, an apostle or other things having to do with his ministry, but this is how he opens his letter to Philemon. And keep that in mind. Because what is he doing? But he's writing to the former owner of a slave, and he's calling himself a prisoner. Now, Paul is not 
You'll find a lot of places in here when we get into the nitty-gritty of it. Paul is not trying to uh, twist Philemon's emotions, but he's doing everything. He's telling the truth, but he's doing everything underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to speak to Philemon about what he's calling him to do and appealing to him in ways that will communicate to Philemon as if Paul is standing in front of Philemon talking to him personally. And he goes, Philemon, by the way, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus. That's how he opens the letter. This is Paul, the apostle. But he starts with a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother. Timothy's with him there, uh, likely not co-authoring the letter, just with him. This is all greetings, right? That's what's happening at the beginning of this letter. Greetings to everyone there. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apthia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. It's believed, again, there's no way to substantiate this, but it's believed that Apthia was probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus was probably Philemon's son. But there's absolutely no way to know that for sure. It just assumes as much because it's talking about a household, talks about the church in your house, singular, the church in your house, and it, uh, the way in which the whole sentence is structured, it has to be referring back to Philemon. So the church is in Philemon's house. Philemon has a church in his house. Apphia seems to be within that household, and so does Archippus, and so it, we can do nothing else but assume that they're a family. Archippus is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, and you probably remember this, perhaps, um, right near the end of the letter, Pastor Byron mentioned this some time ago, almost the last verse of, of Colossians, uh, verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So Paul refers to him as a fellow soldier. He also, in Philippians, refers, refers to Epaphroditus with the same title, fellow soldier. So Archippus is a, an, an, an important uh, person. He's in ministry. He is uh, a fellow soldier. You wouldn't throw that term around lightly. Paul's not just calling him a bro or something. This is having to do with his standing within the ministry, right? He's a fellow soldier for Christ with Paul. Verse 3. These are the greetings that we just kind of, well, that's nice, and move on. But I'm going to just unnecessarily for a long time, (laughs) park on verse 3, okay? Because I don't want you to read through this too quickly every time you come to these. Grace to you and peace. Pastor Byron talked last week about not uh, uh, wasting grace or not uh, 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 taking the grace of God in vain, right? So when Paul says, grace to you and peace... You have to understand, biblically, what's packed into both of those terms as he's talking. He's saying, grace to you. What is grace? It's unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You couldn't earn it. And God freely chose to give you your, uh, his favor. And it's not just grace. It's not just this empty term. It's not just God's so gracious. <laughs> we know it in tangible uh, concrete, physical things, right? We just sung about it, the blood of Christ. How is God's grace delivered to us? Through the giving of His Son, through Jesus coming in, as an incarnate 
as a human being, taking on humanity into his divinity, becoming what nothing else and no one else will ever, has ever been before, the God-man, taking on that, uh, uh, coming down out of heaven, coming down out of glory, living as a man, dealing with all that we, ha- that we deal with, right? And uh, we get without sin, living a life of perfect obedience to God, perfect righteousness, going to the cross, which he did not deserve, on your behalf and mine, and dying a death that he did not deserve, a horrendous, horrible death, shedding his blood, and then rising again, as we sung about in the first song, on the third day, as a triumphant, victorious king. So when Paul says grace, it's shorthand for all of that. Grace to you. It's not just blessings, you know, or the little trite phrases that we use. Grace. And peace. We know peace. There's the peace, right, with God and the peace of God. Peace. Since we've been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Grace and peace to you. Peace. You have peace with God, Philemon. Not because of anything I did, Paul's saying, but because of everything that God has done for you. You have peace with God, Philemon. Furthermore, you have the peace of God in your life that you didn't have before. Everything was a mess. There were storms, as Joel talked about. And when you were in those storms, it seemed like there was no hope. What do we do? Where do we go? Where do we run to? I was listening to a sermon yesterday, and the guy was talking about the most fascinating... He was in Zephaniah. He said the most fascinating thing about what the Lord is saying uh, in that particular text is in the midst of when everything is happening, the cause of all of the destruction and wrath that comes on the day of the Lord is actually the text is telling you, you need to run to the source of all of that trouble, not away from it, which is God himself. It's it's fascinating to think about that. Who's behind everything that takes place? Whose hand, whose sovereign, good, right, just hand is everything flowing through that happens? But the Lord's. And you need not run away from that, but run to that. Because that's where you find grace and peace. And that's what Paul's saying. Grace and peace to you. Now, you there, we can't see this in our English translations because we use you for you or you. Right? But this is plural. Grace to you. Grace to all of the people that he's just mentioned. Grace to you and peace. From who? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful place to take uh, perhaps the Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door. Because Paul says here in this little greeting that grace and peace come not just from God the Father, but from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that the Lord Jesus Christ is on the same plane with God the Father. He is God just as God our Father is. In other places, you've seen Paul perhaps say, um, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, he says that, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses it differently because he's particularly talking about the Father there. But he's particularly talking about the way in which the Father is related to the Son, and he's dealing with things of the Father. But when someone tries to say, well, the Bible doesn't really say clearly that Jesus is on the same plane with the Father, forgetting the fact that Jesus says, I and the Father are one, 
That's pretty clear, I think. But let's pretend like we don't, we don't remember that verse in the conversation. We can go to this greeting that we might just gloss over. And what Paul is saying is grace and peace come to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all in on it. The entirety of the Godhead is in on giving you grace and peace. This isn't Jesus trying to make the angry father happy. This is, right, God so loved the world. The Father so loved the world. The Godhead eternally uh, together gives grace and peace to you. Wonderful things there. Could have just preached all on verse 3. Now, after uh, Paul has opened verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. This is common for what Paul does, right, in his letters. He's beginning after he's greeted everyone and said maybe who's with him, sent greetings from them. He begins with some appeal to them or some commendation of who he's writing to talking about how he prays for them, talking about how he's thankful for them. I thank my God always and I remember you in my prayers. This is not, when you see that word always, this is not to be some sort of heavy-handed, you need to always be praying for every single person ever. (laughs) Because you can't and you don't. Right? But it does mean that, and that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying every single moment of every single day, Philemon, I pray for you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, every time I pray, and I remember you, I pray for you. And I thank God for you. That's what he's saying. So this isn't, if you've ever heard someone use that kind of language that Paul says to say, you need to always be praying for everybody. Well, you can't. The only person that always prays for you and everybody else is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit. And the Father. (laughs) Sorry. Just want to release you from that if you've ever heard that. He says he thanks God when I remember you in my prayers. Why? Why does he thank God? Verse 5, because I hear of you. I hear. So this is not something that he's seen. He hears it through someone. I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, I just read that. You have different translations, perhaps. It probably says something different in that particular verse. It's ordered differently. But let's just think about this for a minute. Let's read what it says. I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, we could deal with uh, Philemon having love toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. But it doesn't make any sense for Philemon to have faith toward all the saints. Right? Why would he say that? The best way to understand this is this. He hears of the love that he has for all the saints and of the faith that he has toward the Lord Jesus. Read other places where Paul does introductions in his letter and he says about that same kind of thing. This is just mixed together strangely in some of our English translations. The best way to understand that is Philemon loves the saints and he has faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul has heard of that. I've heard about, I've heard about you, Philemon. I've heard about the way in which you are bearing fruit. I've heard about the way you love the saints. I've heard about your faith toward the Lord Jesus. And you can only hear about love and faith, right, through action. 
I only hear about your love and your faith because I heard you allow your love and your faith to do something, right? I don't hear about, well, he really loves people. I mean, he's kind of a terrible guy, but he really loves people. That wouldn't make any sense, right? I hear about your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus because it, it represents itself in action, right? Keep that in mind. Verse 6. This is another verse that's different probably in every single one of our translations. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, in mine, first glance, I read that and I think Paul is praying for Philemon's evangelism. Because it says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, oh, I read sharing of your faith and I think evangelism. Right? Do you think that? I'm not setting you up to knock you down, but I kind of am. <laughs> okay? And I, I'm going to show you one way why that's not what that means, and then I'm going to show you how you can see that yourself. Okay? First of all, the sharing word there, if you have King James, it's communication. So you might still think, well, okay, that's communication. What is communication, right? Well, the word there is koinonia, fellowship, communion, Right? And so it's something that I share with you, the sharing of your faith. It's not sharing of your faith. It's what we have together, the sharing of your faith. We have this together. So you might think about it this way. This is, what, this is a paraphrase of what he's saying through this verse. Philemon, this is paraphrase. I'm praying that the mutual participation that arises from your faith in Christ might become effective in leading you to understand and to put into practice all the good that God wills for us and that is found in our community and do all this for the sake of Christ. This verse is kind of like shorthand for all of Ephesians 4. Everything that Ephesians 4 talks about, walk worthy, right? And then Paul talks all kinds of things about what that means and the ways in which that fleshes itself out. This little verse is Paul's shorthand of saying, I'm praying that the faith in which you share in might become effective and might do something. Right? He's just said earlier, I've heard of your love and your faith. Right? And that's expressed through action. He's saying, I pray that that continues. I pray that this faith that you share in might become effective and might continue to grow and bear fruit. Right? A simpler, uh, other than reading the entire uh, chapter of Ephesians 4, simpler place to turn is back to Colossians and, and chapter 1. Paul says a similar thing to the whole Colossian church in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says this, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's another way of Paul saying the same thing that he says there in Philemon. Now, you might say, well, Nick, I didn't know that sharing or communication was koinonia, and I'm not going to look that up. Does that mean that I have to know what that is in order to read the Bible? No. I just cheated and ran through that. You can find this simply by reading this text and reading it carefully, which we should always do when we read the Bible. If this meant evangelism, okay, there's nothing else 
about evangelism in the rest of the letter. And the context, the context of what he's saying is that your love and your faith, right? We just read that. How do you know about love and faith but through action, right? And what he's appealing for him to do about Onesimus, right, is to accept him back as a brother. It has nothing to do with sharing his faith with Onesimus. He's not talking about, any, he's not talking about unbelieving uh, people. He's talking about a brother and a brother, right? So you can come to an understanding of what that means through reading the, the letter. <laughs> Imagine that. Reading the letter and seeing the context. So it, you don't have to do what I did. You can, and you can do it very easily with a concordance and all kinds of online tools that we have. They're so We are inundated and so blessed with so many resources to read this, and yet so often we don't and we don't understand. But we have overloads of information that people in, in, in church history past would have been like, you, you, that's all right there? Wow. Right? That's not heavy-handed, you're all terrible. That's just, we have so many resources for us to understand the Scriptures. What a wonderful blessing that is. So what Paul is saying here, I pray that the sharing, the, the commonality of the fellowship that we have in your faith may become effective. I pray, he says, this faith that you have, right? Understand faith. Faith, obviously, we think about faith. Do I have faith? Uh, do you believe in the Lord? Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You might, you might nest that in, in, in a time when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, which is important, right? But it doesn't stop there. Right? Your faith in Jesus Christ continues to, to exist. Right? Another way to translate the, the word that is translated for us as faith is also faithfulness. And that's ongoing. Right? That, I, that I have a sense of faithfulness to my faith. That it's ongoing. It keeps going. It keeps happening. And that's what Paul is saying. I pray that the fellowship that you have in the faith may become effective. For what? The full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Or in other ways, everything that's in Christ. What he's saying is, Philemon, there's so much in Christ, you can't exhaust all of the riches that are in there. What that means. You can't get, you can't get to the bottom. You just keep digging and there's more and more and more. And he's not just talking about, isn't it so great that the Lord has saved you, Philemon? Because that's true. But he's talking about that what is in Christ actually manifests itself and grows in a way in which how we deal with one another and how we grow and how we bear fruit. And all of that's in Christ. I've used this silly illustration before. When I was a kid, I used to go to my grandparents, right? And I love cereal. And so you ask your grandparents for cereal. And grandparents, you either got muslix, you got, you know, oat, crackling oat bran, you got the puffed rice, right? Come on. Well, my, my grandpa would always have grape nuts. And so I would tell my grandma, I want, I want a bowl of cereal, Right? Where's the cookie crisp? Where's the Captain Crunch? I want my mouth to be bleeding, right? Um, sorry. But you get grape nuts. And then there's the bowl of grape nuts. And it covers, the milk covers the grape nuts to where it's like, okay, where's the cereal? But you just keep digging. And more grape nuts keep coming out. They just keep coming. 
Christ is way better than grape nuts. But in my mind, the way my goofy mind works, I think about that a lot. We think about all the things that are in Christ, all the things that are in the Lord. It just keeps coming. It never stops. (laughs) Grandparents, buy your grandkids some lucky charms or something. That's for free. Okay, moving on, back to the the Bible. Um, This is what he wants Philemon to have, full knowledge. Full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. It's for the sake of Christ, not for our sake, Paul says. Verse 7, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. What love? The love that he has towards all the saints that he already mentioned, my brother, he says, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon is being faithful in loving the saints so much so that they are having hearts that are refreshed. Have you ever had your heart refreshed by the Lord through his word, through a brother or sister in Christ praying with you, encouraging you, loving on you. It's, it's a wonderful blessing. So you can know what, he's, what he means by that. And he's saying, I have derived much joy and comfort. Paul is so joyful and so comforted by the fact that Philemon, what Philemon said, when I, I Jesus Christ is Lord, it didn't stop there with Philemon. It kept going, which is what the Christian life is. It doesn't stop with, I'm not going to hell. It continues to happen and continues to bear fruit and grow such that people's hearts are being refreshed. When people are with you, when other saints are with you, are their hearts refreshed? Because Philemon is just Philemon. He's not an apostle. He's not anything super. He's a Christian man. But when people were with Philemon, their hearts were refreshed. When other Christians are with you, are their hearts refreshed? Accordingly, verse 8, or therefore. He's about to get to his appeal now. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. This is Paul saying, as an apostle, I have authority to command you to do what I'm about to ask you to do, Philemon. I have authority from the Lord, not self-derived, not self-appointed. He didn't make himself an apostle. He didn't make himself an authority. Jesus did that. He's saying, I, I, I have authority that I can command you to do this. To do what, look what he says, to do what is required. So what Paul is saying is not just Paul's preference, Paul's suggestion. This is what is right, Philemon. What I'm about to tell you to do and appeal to you to do, this is what is right. What is required? Yet, verse 9, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Notice he says love. This is Paul being a wonderful, wonderful pastor. Because Paul is setting down a model of laying down his authority, laying down his rights, right? He introduced himself as a prisoner. He said, I have the authority to command you to do this, but I'm going to appeal to you for love's sake. Because that's exactly what he wants Philemon to do. Paul's a great pastor. He leads in the way in which he wants those whom he's leading to follow. Not just telling people to do it. Do what I say because I say. 
right? You can only take so much of that until you're like, I don't want to do that, right? But when you have a leader, when you have someone who is over you in the Lord, who is doing what they're saying for you to do, does that not become compelling to want to follow that? And that's what Paul is presenting, a perfect, wonderful pastoral picture here. Yet for love's sake, I appeal, I prefer to appeal to you. He says, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. This is, again, Paul laying down. i got a few more cards here, Philemon. I'm an old man. <laughs> oh, I'm a prisoner. Did I mention I was a prisoner? I have the authority to command you. He's got his whole deck laid out here. I have the authority to command you all this, but I'm going to appeal to you for love's sake. I'm an old man. I'm a prisoner. Right? This is not Paul bending and twisting his emotions. This is just him telling the truth. I'm an old man. I'm a prisoner. I can tell you to do this. But for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child. God in his grace has put men and people in my life who are my I have many spiritual parents. I trust that you have that as well. Some of yours are probably in glory. But listen to the way that Paul talks about Onesimus. I'd appeal to you for my child. How much care he has for Onesimus. How much he cares about him. How much he loves him. How much he values him. Onesimus is a slave. He's, he's at the bottom of every, every chart. And Paul cared. Paul's a Roman citizen. Paul's a Pharisee. Paul has so much up on him in society. He's in a completely different league if Paul wanted to play that card. But he says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. This is not just flowery language. This is Paul's heart. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Literally, who I begat in my imprisonment. Many of you have children. Some of you may not. But do you have spiritual children? Do you have anybody whom you have begat in the Lord? Do you have anybody whom you have just set, God's put in front of you, and you have given of yourself to them, you've become vulnerable to the place of, this person could hurt me, I'm taking a chance. They could get to know that I'm not what they might think that I am, but I'm going to share what has transformed my life with them. Do you have any of those? Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Remember what Onesimus' name means? Useful. Formerly he was useless to you. This is not about Onesimus, what Paul is saying. This is about Philemon. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. 
This is about Paul's appeal to Philemon. Now that Onesimus is Philemon's brother in Christ, the way in which Philemon looks at Onesimus and treats him is entirely different because he's now a brother. When Onesimus comes back and sits next to Philemon in worship, he's a brother in Christ, a co-heir with Christ. They're on the same level playing field before the Lord of the universe. So all of that Social nonsense about, I'm master, you're slave, I have this, you don't. All of that erodes before the cross. None of that matters. Whatever status that Philemon wanted to perhaps try to think about or claim over Onesimus, Paul is saying, it's gone. That's why he's saying, he was useless to you. You saw him as a slave, even though Philemon was a Christian. You saw him as a slave. He was less than, if you will. But now, he is indeed useful to you. This is Paul's, it's a clever wordplay on Onesimus' name. Uh, Normally, in in this context, the the owner uh, or the master of the slave named the slave. So if Onesimus was born in Philemon's house, he named Onesimus, Onesimus, named him useful. Or if he bought him, purchased him at some point, he named him Onesimus. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. He's saying Onesimus has value and worth. He's always had it, Philemon. But now you know what I'm talking about. This is Paul as if he was sitting down with Philemon. Philemon, you know what I'm talking about. He has value and worth. He's always had it, but now he has it and you have it just the same. Your brothers in Christ. Verse 12. I'm sending him back to you. Sending my very heart. This is... (laughs) This is again showing Paul's care and love for Onesimus. But Paul is taking a chance here. What a startling thing. Paul is prepared to send the now converted Onesimus back to his former master. See, there were, there were laws, not necessarily uh, laws in the Old Testament, but laws in and amongst the societies of that time that if you had a runaway slave, you were under duty to send him back to his master. And there were all kinds of stipulations for that. So in some ways, Paul, in doing this, is following the law of the land. But as we'll read the rest of the letter next week, none of that comes through. Paul is not sending him back because I'm trying to follow the law. Paul is sending him back for a different reason. But Paul's taking a chance, if you will. Paul's prepared to do something radical because of his understanding of the pervasive power of the gospel in all things. You see, many people that read this letter think and want to talk about slavery. I read one guy spent 90-some pages talking about slavery before he just talked about Philemon. (laughs) Everybody wants to make this about slavery. Slavery is there. It's in the background. It's wicked. It's despicable. It's sinful. It devalues people. It's a system that is ugly. But see what Paul is doing, and you'll see this as we continue through. Some people say, more liberal scholars scholars will say, uh, Paul missed the boat here. He should have, he should have dealt with slavery more. <laughs> As if you're going to tell the Lord uh, how he should have written the Bible. 
But Paul understands, and more than Paul, the Lord is pleased to say that the real heart of the issue is, (laughs) you know that God actually trusts the gospel? Here's what I mean by that. He actually trusts that the gospel is powerful enough to come within in the midst of broken human society and do things far beyond what we think they are. It's not just about, well, I'm going to heaven. Right? That's everything he's been saying thus far. It's coming through in everything he's saying. I pray that your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul trusts in the power of the gospel that has both redeemed Onesimus and redeemed Philemon. From a worldly perspective, this this seems like, well, gosh, Paul's not very kind to Onesimus to send him back to his master. How much does he really care about Onesimus? Paul cares even far more greater about his Lord, whom has redeemed both of them. And he trusts and knows that the gospel is going to prove effective and fruitful in as Onesimus comes back. I have a couple places I want to go as we land the plane. Galatians chapter 3. Because I, I mentioned at the beginning or earlier on, that this is Paul applying theology, putting theology into practice. You think theology is useless? You think it's meaningless? You think it's just things that people sit around and think about? No, Paul doesn't. Paul thinks that when you grasp it and you understand right doctrine, that it has impact on everything. Even down into the nitty-gritty little social things that we like to pretend that the Christian life doesn't have anything to do with. Galatians 3 at the end, verse 26, I'll start in. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Here it is. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote Galatians before he wrote the letter to Philemon. Many years before. And this is Paul... Applying that to the situation of Philemon and Onesimus. Philemon, when Onesimus comes back in Christ, there's not slave or free. You're all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean, now, people have taken this verse, and you probably are aware of this, that just suddenly means that we all just become nothing. Right? There's no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female or all one. And everybody's just this binary glob in Christ. That's not what it means. It's not eradicating all, all, all uh, sense of, and, and particularly in terms of gender, I'm still a male in Christ. But my maleness does not give me anything over any female before Christ. Neither does it go the other way. We're all one in Christ Jesus. But all that God intends for me to be as a male, and all that God perhaps intends for you to be as a female, is for his glory and his sake and his goodness. That retains and remains. What's good about all of that remains. But before the cross, we are on equal footing. And that's what he's saying about no slave or free. Ephesians 2, just a couple pages over. 
He wrote this most likely about the same time, as I said, as he wrote Colossians and Philemon. And in Ephesians 2, he's talking about this oneness in Christ. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. But it's very applicable for everything that divides us. Start in verse 14. For he, that is Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, he goes on to talk about all the things that divide Jews and Gentiles. But that alone is true of everything that divides us. Such that Jacques and Sebastian, or Meshed, or anybody else that we interact with who are in the body of Christ, who stand on equal ground before the cross with us, anything that would divide us is eradicated in Christ. Now you might say, well, that's awfully idealistic. Let's deal with that for a moment. Is God idealistic? Is, is, is God shooting? Is he just really optimistic about, I really, really think this is going to work? Is that how God deals with things? No. This is what is true. He uses words like is, has made, right? This isn't, I hope that it is, or it might be, or eventually it could, or it should but is and has made, right? Let's go down to verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God has done something in Christ in bringing people who should be, for other reasons, worldly reasons, whatever else, separated from each other. And you might say, okay, Nick, I don't have a slave. And I'm not waiting on my runaway slave to come home. Or I'm not a slave, right? Don't, don't get caught up in the details. But understand that the principle that's inherent in this letter and that Paul is getting after and that the Lord wants us to see is that all of the things, I started with talking about love in the church, all of the things that can divide you and I, socially, um, economic, whatever, all of the things that can divide you and I are done away with in Christ. And the only way that we are letting the gospel become effective and do its full work in us is that we are displaying that that is actually true. And if we're not, then we're not. Then we haven't come to a full knowledge of all that is in Christ. We haven't arrived. It's not just, I'm not going to hell and I'm going to heaven and Jesus is great. All of those things are true if you're in Christ, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? But this is where it gets hard socially. Well, that person said that to me. Well, that person does this, or they like that, or they don't do this, or they value this, or they think that. There's just not any room, friends, for any of that in the body of Christ. And the, do, do you trust that the gospel can take care of that? If you do, then you need to allow that to have its full work in us. Those of you that aren't Christians here, perhaps this morning, I'm sorry. 
That if you've ever seen the church seem like we are just a bunch of people who talk behind each other's backs and raise our hands when we sing. I'm sorry. That's not what this is about. That's not what this is supposed to be. We're sinners. But if we allow the gospel to do its full work in us, become obedient, understanding all that is in Christ for us, for his sake, Paul is pointing us to this fact. Imagine that. Imagine Onesimus coming back. And he he perhaps would have been standing by Tychicus while he's reading the letter. And there stands Onesimus next to Tychicus, who has sent the letter to the Colossian church. And there's Philemon sitting a couple rows in. And maybe after they read it, they sing a few hymns and pray. What What an amazing picture of what the gospel can do in repairing. And we go home and we're all mad about this, that, or the other. Do you know what they said? Do you know what he said? Do you know what they're doing? They looked at me this way. Friends, we cannot allow a rotten core to exist in this body. Because God's not going to do anything with us if that exists. And there's no room for clicks and in and out, they're in, I'm out. There's no room for any of that. We are, we are one in Christ. That's not we'd like to be or we should work towards that. God says we are one in Christ. And so we need to live accordingly and allow the gospel to have its full effect in us. Let's pray.